On Monday, July 27th, 2020, I conducted a series of live streaming interviews to discuss voting rights, voter suppression, and the upcoming 2020 election. This was one of those interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Rebecca Coakley. Rebecca Coakley is the director of the Disability Justice Initiative at American Progress, where her work focus is on disability policy. Most recently, she served as the executive director of the National Council on Disability, better known as NCD, an independent agency charged with advising Congress and the White House on issues of national disability public policy. She joined the NCD in 2013 after serving in the Obama administration for four years, including time at the Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as a stint at the White House where she oversaw diversity and inclusion efforts. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? I am good. How are you? Look at all those books behind you. Yeah. I I I feel like you read them. Oh, yeah. No, like it's a mix of like my stuff and my husband's stuff. I moved from sitting in front of like the heavily like presidential academic bullshit to like purposely sitting in front of comic books that have to do with like the end of times. Because I figure it's like much more relevant to sit in front of like Hellboy than an autobiography of President Obama right now. So uh, I, 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 you are so correct about that. I agree with you. Thank you. I, I'm thrilled to to have you here. I haven't seen you in person <laughs> in forever. In forever. And I was just talking to Christina Platt from the Anti Racism Center. We were both saying. We're so frustrated that all these great people that we know, we can't be in the same room with each other. It's such a frustrating, yeah. I mean, especially in a time like this where I feel like, um, like now is the, like, and I hate, I hate quoting Rahm Emanuel. I really do. But like the, the crisis and opportunity, like dynamic and being like, now is the time we really need to be like in spaces together, organizing and strategizing. And like, we really can't. And it totally sucks. It does. It absolutely does. But I'm glad that you took the time to speak with us today and you are a wealth of knowledge and and people know this because you're in like 12 articles, I feel like, this week. People are, are taking advantage of you, and I love it because it's, you need to have more of your brain in the world. It's ADA month. Like, and I realized probably about like two weeks ago, some friends and I were sitting around, and we realized that we're now the elders because in our community, like, our folks don't have the luxury of aging. Like, we lose folks so early. And um, we were sitting around, and we were like, you know, there's times where I want to be like, I need an adult. I need an adult. And then you have the moment where you're like, crap, I'm the adult. When did this happen? (laughs) I still feel like that. I still, I I feel like I need an adult, especially right now. 99 days before the election. Yeah. So I, I want my audience to know about this wonderful story. I, 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 I've kept my paper, my New York times. Yeah. With John on it. And Representative Lewis, respectfully, 
And you shared a really wonderful story about Representative John Lewis and you meeting on Twitter. And I was wondering if you would mind recounting that for the audience. Definitely. Um, so my maiden name is Hare. Um, my, fa- my dad's family, my dad grew up in Selma, Alabama. And um, my paternal grandfather was a federal judge. Um, in Alabama, um, uh, Judge James Hare, uh, who is notorious on a, on a number of different fronts, um, none in a good way. Um, and one of the things that he had, uh, uh, Congressman Lewis had been brought before my, my grandfather's court a number of times um, for protesting and for civic activism that, that he was helping spearhead in the South. And uh, and so there's actual, like, in, in his uh, Walking with the Wind, which is actually up on, my, up on the, the reputable side of my bookshelf, um, there is a section of the book that is specifically focused on my grandfather. Um, and so they had a lot of back and forth. And one of the things that my grandfather did while a judge was he ruled on a case that then made it law that three or more African-Americans congregating constituted a mob. And that case was directly tied to the congressman. Um, I, you know, my dad was very much different than his parents. My dad in like 1970 met my mom at a little people convention and like drove his 69 Camaro from Selma to San Francisco where he shacked up with my mom who was a long red haired flower child. Um, like one, she was like one of nine, like big Irish family. Um, and both my parents were activists and like my dad ran a center for independent living. My mom ran a disabled student center at a college. So I was really born into activism and specifically activism that um, at the time wouldn't have been called like intersectional activism, I guess would be called like cross movement organizing or, you know, just like showing up for folks. That was really like my parents thing. Um, so then when I moved here uh, years later, when I moved to DC, and started doing policy work on, on issues facing people with disabilities. I started engaging with Congressman Lewis's office. And I remember uh, one day, like, cracking the, like, I was, we actually had gone to his book signing. And so it was my husband and I and my son. It was about two weeks before my daughter was born. Um, so I was hugely pregnant. And, you know, we get up to the line. He's like, oh, Rebecca, it's so nice to see you. And I said, you know, Congressman, and, and, and reading your book... Um, I learned some things. And he was like, what? And I was like, you know, I was like, you know me as Rebecca Coakley. My maiden name is Rebecca Hare. Um, I'm, my dad was Billy Hare. And he like pauses and he looks at me and he was like, Judge Hare's son? And I was like, yeah, one and only. And, and he looked at me and he looked at my family and he looked at, at Jackson running around. It was about two and a half or three at the time. and was like, wait, that's, that's uh, Judge Hare's great grandson? you know, and I was like, yeah. And he's like, he didn't live to see this, did he? And I was said, no, not at all. And he was like, well, that's the art. Like, mm-hmm. you know, knowing the work that you do and the work that you do today. And, you know, he's like, even beyond your family, he's like, which is, you know, he's like, I love your family. It's a beautiful family. He's like, I'm proud of y'all. But like the fact that you're doing this work at the nexus of multiple movements and that you're raising um, a biracial disabled kid, like mm-hmm. in DC 
as, and at the time he's like, as President Obama's diversity officer, he's like, your granddaddy is rolling over in his, your great your great granddaddy is rolling over in his grave. He's like, and I, he goes, and this gives me pleasure, like tremendous pleasure. Um, you know, and we had, a, we had a, a friendship, you know, when I, I've been writing a book for a while and, um, you know, crashed his office right after the election and was like, okay, who do I need to talk to about my research? Like, who should I be engaging with? Like, I've talked to this person, I've talked to this person, I've talked to this person. And quite frankly, I said, I was like, everyone I'm talking to is starting to pass away, so I, need, I know I need to do this now. Um, yeah. And he kicked my butt for a good 20 minutes and was like, you're way behind, you need to get on this, this book is important. And, you know, he's like, here's like five places for you to go next. And so we really, as a family, really treasured um, the friendship we had with him. You know, he he he, there's, there's no one like him. Like there's, I mean, I remember watching him walk down, walk down Pennsylvania Avenue from the hill or up Pennsylvania Avenue from the hill to go pick up his dry cleaning. And like, we'd be sitting at the pizza place at We The Pizza and he'd walk up the street and be like, hi, Congressman. He'd be like, hey, Coakley's, how are you? And everybody would stop him and talk to him. Um, because he was a real life superhero. He was a legend. Um, and like literally then one of his staffers would come running up behind him and be like, have you seen? And we're like, he's at the dry cleaners. And they'd be like, he insists it's 102 degrees and he's walking up from his office to pick up his dry cleaning. And it's like, that's just who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the world is a lot less cool without him in it now. Like it, the yeah. world feels less cool. It feels less, um, the, the light has dimmed momentarily. I- I agree. And that's why today I wanted to make sure that each guest got to speak about him because um, voting rights and, and, and where we are with voting rights in our country, I, I want to see the, the VRA restored in his name just because of everything that he did. And, oh, definitely. Um, it, you know, and so... So I will, I will say thank you for sharing that story. I really appreciate it. I also want to talk about the ADA turning 30. I felt like the ADA just turned 25, so I don't know yep. where the last years went. How um, They've I'm, gone to hell. That's where I the last know. five years have been. That's too truthful. That's too, it's very true. Um, and I know that the ADA is mixed with joy, but also mixed with frustration. And I've been observing uh, the conversations that you and Matthew, shout out to Matthew, by the way, Corland, if he sees, hi, Matthew. Hey, um, Matthew. Um, I, I've, I've been enjoying watching the conversations back and forth, um, but I'd like to know, what do you think that the, the ADA's direct impact has been on, on voting rights for disabled people? You know, the ADA was intended to be a, a tremendous door opener. I mean, the, the promise of it really is stated in the preamble. It's, it's access to equality of opportunity, full participation, independent living, and economic self-sufficiency. Um, but there's so many things, like the ADA is such a product of its time. And in some ways that's a good thing. I mean, the reason we don't have like a standardized checklist of what counts as a disability and what doesn't is because the ADA was written on the heels of AIDS and HIV's major outbreak. Um, you know, and was written 
largely and, legis- and, and lobbied for largely by folks coming out of Vietnam. So we had people with both hidden disabilities and people with visible disabilities. I mean, there was a huge sort of coming together of, of very clear and very specific circumstances in, in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, you had a Republican president, you had a Republican attorney general, and you had Republicans in Congress all say that they cared about this. I mean, it's, you had the first time disability was ever mentioned at a national convention was by President George H.W. Bush who dedicated his campaign for office in getting the law signed. Um, and nowadays we don't have Republican, we have very few Republicans that support the law, um, you know, and disability, I would argue is not bipartisan anymore. Um, I, I wish it was. And, and some of my elders may fundamentally disagree with me and that's fine. Like I have yet to see, especially frankly, since the death, of Cheryl Sensenbrenner, who passed away this year as well, who was a huge champion for the disability community in a lot of ways, one of our last champions on the other side of the aisle. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting to see the law turn 30, but there's still so much further to go. And I think voting is a really key piece. I mean, the GAO has shown us in the last three presidential cycles, it hasn't shifted. There's still 60% of polling places that are inaccessible. Like, and that number hasn't moved. Mm -hmm. You know, this Mm -hmm. has been the law for 30 years, but for the last 12, we have yet to see any move on on voting accessibility. Um, And if anything, I think the conversations around the pandemic and the impact of COVID on this upcoming election, it's going to make it that much harder because there isn't Mm -hmm. a one-size-fits-all solution. So what are some of the specific obstacles during COVID? Um, We know that non-disabled people and disabled people are worried about getting sick when going to the polls. But what do you think are some of the unique challenges the disability community faces when voting? You know, I think uh, in the tremendous advocacy that's been done around vote by mail, it's also the reality that vote by mail is not a panacea. It doesn't work for everybody. And so, for example, people who are blind, um, who may need assistive technology to read their ballots and be able to still cast a private vote, might not be able to access a print ballot. Um, you know, I think in terms of, we know that any type of voter suppression technique, whether it be voter ID laws, whether it be the closing of polling places um, under the ADA, I mean, we saw that in the, in the Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp race several years ago, where the Secretary of State, now governor, uh, went around and closed polling places specifically in the black community Um, to suppress the black vote. And he used the ADA to do it. And it was a real abuse of the law. The law, civil rights should never be used to undermine someone else's rights. Um, And so, you know, also making sure that we're not, we're not closing polling places in in communities of color and in low income communities under the guise of safety, but really as an act of voter suppression. Um, You know, and I think also thinking about how do we, there's a real momentum also around making voting day a holiday. I mean, that that would actually be a really negative thing for folks with disabilities and low income folks. Um, We would see limits in the availability of public transportation um, for folks that have caregivers or would depend on someone else taking them to vote. um, A lot of times those contracts require you have federal holidays off. You know, and we know that our folks are more likely to work low-income jobs. You know, what we call the eight Fs of disability employment, food, filth, fetching, folding, filing, flowers, festive, and friendly. 
those jobs don't get federal holidays off. Um, And so it would actually make it that much harder. So we've been really advocating for a mix of um, making it making voting day a hall a federal holiday in addition to having a minimum of two weeks of early voting. Okay, so one of my frustrations I will just say is Rebecca, that's the first time I've heard someone say that. Why is the media not able to communicate what you just said about why that would be problematic? Because it's the only thing. It's it was it's it brings you back to the straw ban. Right? Yeah. No one said, get yeah. rid of all of them. No one needs them. No one needs them. And uh, the disability community was like, uh, can you wait on that? So, so wh- where is the failure to have that conversation about it being a national holiday? Why is that missing from the voting right for, from voting advocates speaking on that? You know, and I think part of the challenge is, frankly, a lot of voting advocates aren't engaging with the disability community. We're actually really excited um, for the work that we're doing over at the Center for American Progress, specifically because we work so closely with our democracy team. And so everything that CAP has been putting out around uh, voting, voter registration, around um, voting access, around Election Day has specifically been framed in early voting in conjunction with making voting day a holiday. Um, you know, and so I think there's a, there's a huge challenge with it. And I think also, frankly, let's be real. There's some class issues with this. I mean, it, we know that it disproportionately impacts low income folks and Mm -hmm. as civil rights groups, we aren't always that great talking about class within our communities. And the fact that like, there's a certain group of our folks that will be fundamentally left behind if we, if we jump on the bandwagon around making voting day a national holiday. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you answered a little bit of something that I was going to ask you, but I do want to talk a little bit about an article that you wrote, and you were also just featured in Refinery29. But first, I want to talk about um, Hands Off the ADA. You had touched um, on earlier um, when Brian Kemp was the Secretary of State of Georgia. He had misappropriated the ADA to uh, cause voter suppression. Um, what else have you seen when you say hands off the ADA? I would love to know a little bit of some key points of that article that you just wrote. I, I thought it was fabulous, but I want people to, I'm going to post it right now, actually, on this. But I would like, would you mind telling us a little bit about that article? Definitely. So when we were working on this, it really, frankly, started out of frustration with um, my other least favorite governor, who's Governor Abbott in Texas. Um, who's also the only wheelchair-using governor that we have right now. Um, When we started hearing reports about his social media posts um, desiring to arrest homeless people for blocking sidewalks, Um, Governor Abbott has been very active in wanting to limit the ADA. And it sort of blew me away that as he was advocating for weakening the law, he was like, yeah, but let's use it to arrest homeless people. And it just made me so angry. And so my team and I were sitting around one day and we're like, what are all the other ways that people have been abusing the ADA? Um, And so we knew obviously about the voting issues. Uh, We wanted to look into, and frankly, we weren't able to find anything that clearly stated it, the way that the ADA has been used to close abortion clinics. We know it's been done, but the, the jargon that's been used has been very grounded in like, architectural standards, um, not framing it in accessibility. So it made it hard for us to make the case. Um, and then obviously like, like around COVID now, specifically Mm -hmm. as we've watched this merging of anti-vaxxers 
and anti-maskers coming together saying, hey, you can use the ADA to bypass mask requirements when right. you actually, the ADA actually has language in the law that says, no, uh-uh, you can't. Like in times of national emergencies, in times of health emergencies, you are not allowed to use the ADA. Like the ADA can't override federal policy. Right, right. Well, I just posted the article because I want everyone to see what you wrote, Matt. And also you just were in another article for Refinery29. The title of it was, 30 years later, the American dream is still not ADA compliant. You've touched on a little bit of those aspects, but a couple of lines really stood out to me. You said American culture values individuals based on their ability to produce and obtain capital. And our economic system punishes people with disabilities in a variety of insidious ways. You also list a number of policies that could address the issue, which I thought was wonderful. Could you tell us briefly about some of those um, policies you mentioned, the Asset Act and Raise the Wage Act? So the disability community has the um, misfortune of living under legalized poverty and legally enforced poverty, whether it be laws, you know, loopholes within the Fair Labor Standards Act that still allow people with disabilities in certain cases to receive less than minimum wage. Um, we still live with a marriage penalty. So if you're, un- if you receive SSI and you acquire more than $2,000 in your savings account um, and you're married, you can actually lose your health care. You know, and so while marriage equality has been embraced by a number of communities, we are still waking as we always are. Um, You know, and, and the asset limits piece is so true. I mean, we sit there and force people to choose whether they have, you know, as we've seen governors and as we've seen the president strongly endorse Um, work requirements, which would require people who are receiving benefits on means-tested programs to maintain a full-time job in Mm -hmm. order to receive SNAP benefits. We're actually Mm -hmm. forcing people to choose between a job and health care or a job and and, and food on the table. Um, You know, and the way these benefits all sort of play out and intermingle is it really does cause like a federal enforcement of poverty among the disability community. Legalized poverty is probably the most heartening two words you can put together. Um, What do you think could change if we have a democratic elected majority in both houses? uh, If we have a democratic president, do you think there could be a major push for some of these policies at that, at that time? I do think we could see some shifting. I mean, we had 12 candidates, an, an unprecedented 12 candidates, put out disability policy portfolios and, and mm-hmm. policy proposals, which we had never had before. I mean, mm-hmm. um, when, pres- when it was President Obama, Secretary Clinton, and, um, and John Edwards, at that point, None of them, I mean, that was the last time we had sort of like multiple candidates running. None of them had released a platform. And it wasn't until December before the primary in 07 that President Obama released a platform. And he was the first to actually release a disability policy platform. This time around, we had 12 candidates. And across the board, we saw, with the exceptions really of a couple of the more outlier folks, Everyone addressed subminimum wage and talk about eliminating subminimum wage as part of the Raise the Wage Act. 
Um, we also saw everyone endorse the idea of removal of asset removal or elimination or significant raising of asset limits, depending on the program. Um, and so I have a lot of hope. We've seen Sherrod Brown has been very vocal in his commitment around asset limits because he really does see it as enforced poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he sees it firsthand with, with the folks with disabilities and seniors and low-income folks in his state. Um, you know, we've seen uh, Vice President Biden endorse these ideas as part of his disability platform as well. And so we continue to have real hope for this because um, it would be a fundamental game changer for people mm-hmm. with disabilities. I mean, I'm always, I always remember there was a professor um, named Paul Longmore, who is a disability history professor, and he had written a book about George Washington. And Paul was on um, a couple of means-tested programs at the time. And as his book then got picked up as a mandatory part of freshman curriculum for um, the UCs. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, unintentionally, I mean, college textbooks are expensive. He ended up with a huge boost of income because his book was picked up as mandatory curriculum. Right. And he lost his health insurance. Yeah. I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. I was like, boom, boost of income. Oh no. Okay. He ended up burning his book. He ended up having a bonfire of his books at the center of one of the campuses. And his Mm. second book was called why I burned my book. Um, you know, and so we actually punish disabled people. I mean, this is a way that people literally have their lives ruined. Um, because they're forced, because of that tie-in between work, income, and health insurance, which uh, it, it is easily one of the most messed up things that our community really deals with. Right. Before I move on to ableism, and I want to talk about this, for some people who don't know what it is, I would like to ask, uh, a lot of people don't know what sub-minimum wage is. Would you mind just giving the definition of that? Sure. So within the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is now, I think, 80 or 81 years old at this point, um, which was part of a part of the New Deal, um, uh, they created a loophole by which would al- it would allow employers to be able to pay disabled workers less than minimum wage as as um, a ch- as like a move of charity. This was never intended. And it actually says it in the statute to be a permanent status. Like the idea was like you would start at some minimum wage and that you would transition. However, Mm. we know that these programs don't transition people. We know that the people running these programs make millions of dollars a year and their Mm -hmm. workers can be paid as little as $2 and 15 cents a week. Um, you know, and we're talking about, you know, we're talking about big companies. We're talking about places like Goodwill, um, who make a significant profit off of disabled labor that is not paid fairly. And so this is something we've been fighting against for a long time. And while we understand, this is also a real generational thing too. Um, and I was actually talking to a couple of members of Congress about this last week, where this was set up at a time where there wasn't mainstreaming of students with disabilities in education where there weren't programs designed to help disabled people get jobs. It was set up at a time where families were really worried about what was going to happen to their loved ones with disabilities and how to create social supports for them, how to help them make friends, et cetera. Um, 
But at the same time, we've seen programs make the transition. I like to highlight um, being here in the D.C. area. We always hear the, the commercials for Melwood, um, mm. which was set up by a number of veterans and, and military families for their loved ones with disabilities. And Melwood has mm. successfully transitioned from paying less than minimum wage to paying minimum wage or higher and okay. have documented their ability to do so. You know, And so I think there's a real concern by a lot of these older families that are like, you're going to take away my loved one's only supports. And the argument that we make is, we're not saying do this overnight. The, the legislative mm. proposals that are out there talk about a six-year graduated transition. And we don't mm. want the companies doing this to go out of business either. So there's actually funding and supports involved for both the individual employees and the companies to help them make that transition. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that because uh, I know that it had gotten mentioned a little bit during the presidential election uh, cycle, but I think a lot of people misunderstood it or didn't really understand it. So thank you. Um, so I want to talk about ableism and I noticed you have Alice Wong's book behind you. Yes. you see that? Okay, yes. very cool. So shout out to Alice shout Wong. Out to Alice. <laughs> so because I, I got to read a couple of the articles and, and they're fabulous. So a uh, very big fan of hers. And she Alice. speaks very, she's amazing and she speaks very eloquently about ableism. So I would like to talk about what ableism is and how you've seen it deploy this election cycle. I mean, I saw your tweet a couple of times about the New York Times hasn't been fabulous uh, a couple of times, right? I know, yes. ridiculous. And also candidates. And also, I want to talk about how ableism is used towards Joe Biden and how it's been used to talk about Trump. So please tell us your thoughts about that and, and, and define what ableism is for people that this is a new terminology for them. So ableism is the discrimination that's used specifically to target against people with disabilities. It um, is grounded in the perception that we are lesser than because we're disabled. Um, you don't have to be disabled to be a victim of ableism. People can assume. And I think that's one of the things that's so powerful about the definition of disability in the ADA is that there's also um, people who are assumed to be disabled count as having protections under that civil rights law. Um, you know, and so the, the assumption that people with disabilities are lesser than because of a lack, inability to be productive in society because of an assumption of a lack of intellect or a lack of capacity for intellectualizing, um, you know, and it fundamentally plays out significantly with sexism, with racism, um, with homophobia, with all the other isms. Um, mm -hmm. it's sort of like, I always joke about how the Jonas brothers have the fourth brother that no one ever talks about as the bonus Jonas. Um, right. I always joke that ableism is the bonus Jonas of the, um, uh, lack of tolerances, you know, um, or the, the isms in general. And, you know, we've seen ableism play out. Actually, it's really interesting. Um, looking at how ableism has played out in politics, you have to, it was never even addressed, frankly, until you go back to um, Bill Clinton and Paul Songus. And right. questions being raised around Paul Songus's candidacy because he was a cancer survivor. Um, mm -hmm. That was the first time it was brought up. People, hold on one second. Hey, come here. You can come and sit. I saw. I, we have I an saw a very. We have an invader. <laughs> I, I, the, the invasion is fine. Yay! 
thanks. Um, thanks for joining. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> yes, this is Kendrick. He he snuck up from the he snuck up from the basement where everyone is supposed to be watching a movie. Um, Hi, Kendrick. And so when you look at the the Songus race um, and how disability was made mention of repeatedly there, um, we saw it obviously come up when it was um, uh, Trump versus Clinton when uh, Hillary had her fainting spell and it was raised as an issue. And this is something that Trump has always, frankly, used in his playbook. Um, He's discriminated against people with disabilities who have applied to own units in his buildings. Um, He always talks about himself as like the the greatest, most supportive person on disability issues ever, which is a complete lie. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think the knee jerk that everyone goes to is the image of him mocking um, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Serge Kovaleski, or as the non-disabled people call it, the disabled reporter, which really pisses us off. Like, know his name, know his beat. He's not the disabled reporter. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, that didn't surprise us. Like, Mm -hmm. when he did that, we're like, oh, that's who we know Trump to be. Like, Mm whoopity-doo, he made fun of a disabled person. Most of us Mm -hmm. don't go a day in society without being mocked in some way, shape, or form. So we're used to that. Um, And then watching, frankly, the back and forth, you know, Trump calling uh, Vice President Biden Sleepy Joe, and like slow Joe and things like that. Um, and then the questions obviously that continue to abound around the president's fitness tests and the president's intellectual fitness. You know, and our big piece has been when you open the door to those conversations and you ground it in ableism, it lets like not even microaggressions, but it lets all the other, it opens the door for all the other ableism that comes in behind mm-hmm. it. Um, and we really feel like. A, if Congress thinks that they have a chance to, to make a play on the 25th Amendment, go for it. Like, go right, for it. Right. Stop bullshitting right. and go for it. Like, don't right. just sit there and him and ha and be like, well, we think he's slow or he rides the short bus or, mm. you know, any of the other things. But it also, for me, really highlights how ubiquitous ableist language is, like, just yeah. in general, how mm-hmm. frequently... You have to sit there and be like, no, let's not use that. And I mean, we saw that even with a number of the candidates. And one of the things that I particularly want to commend um, a number of the Democratic candidates for was actually addressing it and like getting called out by the disability Mm -hmm. community and actively Mm -hmm. responding and saying, no, we actually need to do better. You know, um, I mean, we we lovingly we poked Elizabeth Warren when she kept calling herself a special needs teacher. And we're like, we don't use that language. That language doesn't talk to us. Right, um, right. You know, and her adjusting. We saw similar things with um, Senator Harris and her mental, health por- uh, her mental health proposal, which you and I had talked about, mm-hmm. which was like, let's fix this. Like, this isn't a good mm-hmm. proposal. Let's make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And actually watching, but it, to me, shows the power of the disability community. Because before, mm-hmm. if we would have called that out, we wouldn't have gotten listened to at all. Right. And the right. fact that we saw candidates pivot and change their language and bring on people that could help advise them, that mm. has never happened before. And mm. so to us, that's a real meaningful shift, mm-hmm. um, which frankly, I was really disappointed to see the New York Times completely erase in all of their ADA 30 coverage. I mean, the community has made tremendous leaps in mm. politics right. in 2020. 
and not a single piece of their um, dumpster, largely dumpster fire coverage really included that, you know, and with, with few exceptions, um, shout out to Kia Maria, Marie, uh, my other buddy, Kia Brown, whose book is somewhere else on the bookshelf back here, um, nice. for her coverage on the fashion industry, which I thought was really strong. But then they bring in Andrew Solomon, who's compared raising a disabled child to raising a child who becomes a serial killer. And that's not helpful. That does no. not give people yeah. comfort when they find out that their kid's being diagnosed with something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there still is so much to do. And frankly, it really requires having, you know, our community have a seat at the table. One of the things um, that I've seen you and Matthew and Alice discuss online is when someone is making fun of Trump for not being able to drink a cup of water or walk down a ramp, it's not hurting him. It's hurting the disability community. So uh, one of the things uh, I recognize is that this, the language around how to discuss disabled, non-disabled issues is something that can be, is something that can be learned. But I realize that one of the issues with the New York Times do you think it's because there's a lack of representations of reporters, disabled reporters? Is it a lack of, I mean, is it a lack of their wanting to just reach out to someone to talk to, uh, you know, a disabled advocate? Uh, you know, wh- what have you seen as some of the issues? I mean, it really is a lack of seats at the table. I mean, we saw, we saw the presidential campaigns that were really great on disability were great because they had disabled people on staff. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I can fundamentally say that the Center for American Progress's work on disability, like, got way better once they started, once we started hiring disabled people. Like, mm. there is, uh, we've seen things shift. I mean, Congress has fundamentally shifted how they address disability issues by having Senator Duckworth there. Mm. Right. Who, you know, is one of my favorite people on the face of the planet. And like, I, for me... Specifically, I always highlight the moment where during the ACA sit-ins, um, she went on Facebook Live after C-SPAN shut down their cameras. Mm. And everyone was like, how did you get your phone in? You're not supposed to have phones on the floor. And she's like, I smuggled it in my prosthetic leg. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it was like, that's the most disabled thing ever. Like, I was like, you better watch out, Tammy. They're, they're going to start checking you when you go to the movie theater to see what you're like, if you got popcorn in there or like a two-year-old popcorn soda. Um, but that, I mean, she fundamentally has shown how, like, because of her, remote voting became more popular. Because of her, mm. members were able to bring their children onto the floor. Like, mm-hmm. things that other countries have been doing for forever and our folks never thought to do, they had to because they have a very powerful, very visible, total badass woman of color, like mm-hmm. helicopter pilot, veteran, disabled mom. Yeah. Yeah. Like who yeah. they can't deny, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it's, there's power that is just as when, you know, when we saw the White House start to hire women, more women, all of a sudden mm-hmm. they were like, crap, we don't have enough women's bathrooms. We actually right. have to build women's <laughs> restrooms. Um, and it's sad that that's the reality, but I really do feel like places like the New York times, I mean, on the flip side, we saw, we saw the opposite with a refinery 29 in HuffPo because they hired disabled editors and they hired disabled writers. Um, 
you know, and I got pushback from folks being like, well, what if a writer isn't out? What if, you know, the writers that you're criticizing are actually disabled people, but they're not out. And I might piss some people off, but I'm like, it's the ADA's 30th anniversary. Mm-hmm. If you're not out and you're writing about the ADA, I don't think you have a place writing about the ADA. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. this is a disability pride piece. And if you're not mm-hmm. out, that's your personal choice. And that's mm-hmm. totally cool. Everyone has their own, everyone has their own path. Mm-hmm. But then don't write. Like if you're not out as an LGBT person, why would you be writing in the post edition on pride? True. True. That, should anyone give a damn what your opinion is? No. True. Right. Cause you don't no, act, like your stake in the game is not the same, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And like for us, it's one of those things where it's like, you're just going to keep hiring non-disabled people to tell our stories. That's how we get like the crappy movies we get. You know, yes. that's how we get so much, like that's how we get so much crap. You know, mm-hmm. and it's because it's mm-hmm. all informed by non-disabled people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you talked about power. Um, and according to the CDC, one in four Americans is disabled. This is a formidable yeah. voting block. Huge um, voting block. So where are you seeing improvements? You mentioned a little bit with elected officials that they've been better. But um, why isn't there like a full court press to 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 really court disabled voters and to discussing um, discussing equal access um, and how can we as non disabled or disabled voters advocate for accessible voting in the next fourteen days without trying to sound all savory You're like I'm a savior like we don't want that so how do we do it in a way where well, we y'all are- Y'all are frankly going to have to because COVID is going to be the largest boom in disability numbers. They're already saying that roughly one third of COVID survivors have long-term impacts. And I keep joking that we need to start like getting, so I I told Alice, I'm like, we need to get a run on your bags. So everybody who's got long-term COVID, like someone shows up on their doorstop with like a disability justice is love bag and you open it up and there's like a list of non-jerk uh, medical providers, uh, you know, like four books you need to read, a couple of dongles, and like your secret decoder ring that, that gets you into the club. Um, nice. I mean, because I really do feel like we're, just as I said very early on when COVID first hit that, like we were already mourning our dead. Like we're already accepting and plotting and thinking about our new members. Like everybody who's got long-term impact is, you know, whether it be respiratory, whether it be cardiac, whether it be, I mean, people are losing limbs and people are becoming paralyzed as a result of COVID. Yes, that's Mm -hmm. your hair. Everybody sees your hair. And it's it's lovely. It's lovely. Um, You know, and so like we have to be thinking about it. And I really think like for anyone who loves anybody that has contracted COVID, you're loving a disabled person. Mm-hmm. And thinking mm-hmm. about how do we make the world better for them? Because these numbers are huge. And yes. it's going to take more than just a curb cut at your public library to make this work. Like we're talking mm-hmm. about a fundamental restructuring of society in a way we haven't seen since the New Deal. Right. Um, and thinking about what does that need to look like? How do we make sure that, I had a friend years ago who ran for a board of directors under the platform of sexy wheelchairs are a right. 
because she was talking about how wheelchair technology hasn't changed in like 50 years and it's still boring and ugly. And she's like, why do we have sexy iPods and we don't have sexy wheelchairs? Like, this is crap. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I think the reality also is like, I'm all about playing on the, the vanity of baby boomers. Baby right. boomers are not going to want to go to Shane Pines. Like baby boomers grew up watching Golden Girls and watching Sophia be like, F that mess. I'm not living there. I'm going right. to run away every time. So what does retirement look like for baby boomers now? Like mm-hmm. y'all have sat and poo-pooed our recommendations around home and community-based services. So are you ready to check into Shady Pines now mm-hmm. knowing that a third of the deaths there are, are disabled people and seniors? Like right. we need a fundamental revolution. And like we've been leading the revolution. We are just waiting for everyone else to wake up and join us. Right. Well, you know, I always could talk to you for you know, 24 hours in a this day. This is always so much fun. I, I, I cannot tell you, I have to tell my audience real fast that, um, one of my favorite, like when meeting you is like, you're such a force and you walked into the room you, in DC and you gave the most comforting opening and empowering opening I think I've ever had and I got to be honest, I stole it Good. because you, because you say, when you walk in the room and you say, if you've got, if you have a child that you need to breastfeed, go ahead and do it. If you have to use the restroom while I'm talking, it's not going to bother me. If you have to and feed I, your child Raisin Bran Crunch because they won't ask their dad, they'll only ask you when you're doing something, when you're doing Mayakon, then yes, do it. <laughs> I just thought it was so beautiful because you were basically, you're here. We're happy to have you here. And I, I absolutely love that. I appreciate that about you. Uh, You're always a resource and I hope that we can help somehow make these next 99 days a day of empowerment for disabled voters and for, for everyone so we can get this administration out. You know, definitely. We're ready to get to work. And, you know, if there's anything I would tell folks that are watching is if yeah. you ever want to find out what the disability community thinks about anything, check out Crypt the, hashtag Crypt the Vote on Twitter. It's, it's our universal hashtag on all things disability and politics. Um, you know, and right it, things tied to the ADA are mostly under both ADA 30 and ADA 30 in color, which is Alice Wong's project focusing on disabled people of color at the intersection of racism and ableism in our country. Amazing. Well, I I had a wonderful time speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. I love seeing your child. Hello. Can you say bye-bye? Can you say bye-bye? Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're now performing as a man. I hope that you get your cereal. I think that's what you're desiring. Yes. Or just time. Just mommy's time is what you're desiring. We get it. We get it. Rebecca, thank you so much. I will see you on Twitter. And I hope yes. that COVID ends soon. So when I go back to D.C., we can meet up for a cup of coffee. I'd love to see you in person Definitely. Again. Definitely. Thank you, so, thank you much. so much, Maya. Thank we'll you. talk soon. Definitely. Bye. Bye. Bye, Patrick, too. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Maria. I appreciate your interpreting for us today as well. Thank you for listening to this special season of Obscene, election coverage and voter information.
Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.